Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. By the, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Here ends the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Lee mentioned the the business meeting next week, and I wanted to add to that, thank you for mentioning that, Lee, that there is a report booklet available. So grab yourself a a copy of that if you're interested, and you can kind of see what went on last year. You can take a look at the proposed budget for for next year and the financials and and all that kind of stuff is available in that booklet if, uh, if you're interested. I'd like to get that to you ahead of time. Um, yeah, let, let's pray. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us together, and uh, we just praise you for that. Thank you. Uh, we're so grateful for the strength in our bodies and the, the will to be here. Uh, it is a gift from you. And uh, we would just ask now, Lord, that you'd open your word to our hearts and our eyes. Uh, help me to, to get out of the way, Lord. Um, like Dick just prayed at the end when he got done reading the scripture. That's the word of the Lord. Now we have a, a, a frail human being trying to explain it. And so uh, I pray you will, will use me and may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, if you wanted to do a project, uh, any kind of project, one of the first things you would do is you'd make sure you have what you need. You'd make sure you have the right resources for the project. And so if you wanted to bake a cake, for example, uh, before you started baking anything, you'd make sure you have what you need. You'd make sure you had you know, some measuring cups and a baking you know, cake pan and, and an oven, right? You need an oven to bake that cake in. Or if you were going to paint a room, you need to make sure before you can start anything, you make sure you got paintbrushes and rollers and masking tape to mark off the trim. Or if you were going to plant a garden, I know it's January, seems like a long way away, but it'll be here before you know it. Uh, if you're going to plant a garden, you'd make sure you have seeds and a shovel and you know, sticks maybe to mark out the rows, some sticks and strings, that kind of thing. And so uh, if you're going to do a project, it's really almost universally true. If you're going to do a project where you start, the first thing you do is you make sure you have what you need. You make sure you have the right resources. The Apostle John gives us a project in today's text. 
He gives us something to work on. He gives us a project. The project is right there in the opening words of chapter 2. It's the first half of verse 1. He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. My little children. So he's not yelling at them. It's, it's a term of endearment. He's pulling them close. My little children, he says, I'm writing these things that I'm writing to you right now. Not, it's not the purpose statement for the whole book. It's the section he's in. I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. Uh, this passage picks right up where we left off last week. And last week, we talked about what is true and what is false about sin. Uh, it is false, we said, uh, to say that we don't have a sin problem. That's just a lie, John says. He says it three different times. Uh, it's, it's a lie to say we don't have a problem with sin. The truth is we do. We do have a problem with sin, and we need to deal with it. And we talked about the two truths that he talked about there at the second half of chapter 1. We need to be honest about our sin, and we need to confess our sin to God. So that's where we left off. Now he tells us, he's actually, we could have easily put last week's passage and this week's passage together. It would have been a real long sermon, but we could have put them together because it's the same theme. Now what he does is he tells us how to overcome sin in our lives going forward. And this is what we get, excuse me, in chapter two. So yes, we do live with the reality of sin, but that does not mean we make peace with it. We don't just learn to live with it or accommodate it like we said last week. On the contrary, God wants us to fight. He wants us to fight against our sin problem. He wants us, as my title suggests, to win over sin. And that's the project that God gives us through John here in verse 1. He says, I'm writing these things so that you'll not sin. That's your goal. That's your aim. That's what we're shooting for. Now, I'm going to say this a few times because I think it's a common mistake people make with this passage. John is not saying here that we'll never sin. That's not what verse 1 means. Actually, we dealt with that last week, remember? Uh, that was actually one of the lies we're supposed to reject. 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. Uh, so John is not, when he says in, in verse 1 uh, that you may not sin, I, I write these things so that you may not sin, uh, he's not holding up a perfectionism. Instead, he's telling us, here's your goal. Here's what you're aiming for. Every time you and I as Christians have a choice in front of us where we might sin, every time we face one of those choices, the goal is to become people more and more who say no to that thing rather than saying yes to that thing. That's what verse 1 means. I was thinking it's a little bit like a pitcher, a pitcher in baseball. I know it's a little early for baseball, but uh, it's coming. Uh, If you think about a pitcher, the good pitchers do not go out onto the mound thinking, boy, I hope I can hold the other team to 10 runs tonight. Right? If that's your pitcher's goal, you're going to bust him back down to the minor leagues as soon as you can. Because that's not, 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 not going to work in the big leagues. Oh, I hope I can just hold the Cardinals to 10 runs tonight, or I can hold the Cubs to 10 runs tonight. No, the good pitchers, the ones you pay millions of dollars to and want on your staff, the good pitchers go out there every night planning to throw a shutout. That's their goal. They don't want to give up any runs. Now, the truth is they're going to give up some runs, right? It's the major leagues. The other team's pretty good too, but that's not his goal, right? The pitcher's goal is not, he doesn't get up there planning to give up a whole bunch of runs. His goal is to shut them down. And I think that's what verse one is holding out for us. That's the project. The stuff we read here today is so that we will not sin. Now, that brings us to, to the rest of the text. I think that first part of verse 1 is, is kind of the most important, you know, the, the, the theme part here that's going to define everything else. In the rest of these six verses, John tells us how to do that. 
And this is where this idea of resources comes in, because he basically shows us resources we have to accomplish this goal. And here's the key to these resources. The key to these resources is that they all are about Jesus, right? We're Christians. That should be true. It's all about Jesus. We have the resources we need to overcome sin in our own lives in the person of Jesus Christ. We're not going to get there by relying on ourselves. We're going to get there by relying on him. And so what I want to use our time with this morning is I want to go through the rest of the, the section, verses 1 through 6, and I want to show you three. There are three resources here that help us overcome sin in our lives, to win against sin, and all three have to do with Jesus, specifically a role. There's a role that's described here for us that Jesus occupies in our lives. You'll kind of see what I mean as we go along, but there really are three roles Jesus has in our lives, and those three roles, focusing on them, dwelling on them, meditating on them, living in light of them, those three resources help us. They help us overcome sin. So let's take a look at them, right? Three, three resources we have in Jesus. Uh, number one, the first resource we have in Jesus for overcoming sin is that we have an advocate we can trust. We have an advocate we trust. That's resource number one. Now, I said a minute ago that John is not saying that ver in verse one that we will never sin. That's just not what he's saying. I could take you to Romans 7 in a longer version of this sermon. I did take you to Romans 7, but uh, it, it, we, we, just trust me. Romans 7 says uh, we're going to sin. And, and John is saying here that that's the case. And the, this passage tells me that that is what John believes. I know, I, I know John's not telling us we'll be perfect. How do I know? Because of the next thing he says. Uh, I write these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, uh, we have an advocate with the Father. The reality is, is, is it's going to happen sometimes. Sin is, is, is a possibility. With any given choice, uh, we don't have to pick the sinful one, right? The Holy Spirit lives within us. We, we don't have to choose the sinful one, uh, but there will be times when we will. And, and John knows this. He knows it because he's a sinner, right? Remember who wrote this book. That's why I bothered with that two weeks ago. Uh, who wrote this book? Well, it's John the Apostle, the disciple named John, whom we meet in the four Gospels. Uh, and that man, if you've read the Gospels, and most of you have, you know that man was a sinner. He sinned sometimes. He, he, he was filled with fear. He was filled with pride. He, he turned on Jesus. Even after he was a follower of Jesus, even after he became a follower of Jesus, he still sinned sometimes. And so John knows that even godly people even people who love Jesus like he loves Jesus, and John loves Jesus, uh, but he knows that even people who love Jesus are, are going to sin sometimes. So that's what he's going to address, and this really is resource number one. I'll explain in a couple of minutes after I establish it for you why this helps us, but it does help us. He says, if and when that happens, when we sin, we have an advocate. I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin, but if anyone does, we have an advocate with the Father. Now this word advocate, let's think about it for a minute. The word means helper. It's a word that describes someone who helps us. Uh, literally, it's, a, it's kind of a Greek word which puts two words together, a compound word. And literally what it means is to be someone who is called alongside someone else, called alongside someone to help that person. And a lot of times, there's a general sense of help, but a lot of the uses in, uh, in, in, in Scripture and actually outside of Scripture too in the Greek language, a lot of them are in the idea of pleading somebody else's case. So coming alongside someone to plead that person's case, often before a judge, 
like, like pleading. The, you know, and so when we think about lawyers, a lawyer is an advocate. Sometimes that word will even be used. You know, a judge will appoint an advocate is the idea. It's very much that kind of picture. And so John makes this statement, we have an advocate when we sin. And he tells us a few things about this advocate. Uh, he tells us that, uh, well, first of all, the advocate is Jesus, right? He doesn't want to leave us guessing on this one. Jesus himself is the advocate. The judge is the father. We have an advocate with the father, right? So Jesus is going to present our case. When we sin, Jesus presents our case to the father, he says. And, and the case he's pleading is, has to do with our sin, right? Because that's what we're talking about in the context. So, so Jesus is the advocate pleading our case because we've sinned. He, he pleads our case to the Father. But notice what the case is built on. I think this is the key piece here. Uh, the case is built on his own righteousness. How does John identify Jesus? He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's his own righteousness. That's what the case is presented on. So when we sin, Jesus does not say to the Father, uh, it was a little thing. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, was, it was wrong, but it wasn't that wrong. And, and those people over there, they did a lot worse. So, you know, it's just a small little thing. Don't, let's, let's just give her a pass. Let's just give him a pass this time. That is not the case Jesus makes for us, right? That is not the case he makes. Instead, he brings his own righteousness to the judge's bench. That's what uh, John says. He brings his own perfection, his own perfect goodness. Uh, and that actually explains verse 2. So he says all that, and then verse 2 is going to fill that in for us. What is Jesus? He is the propitiation uh, for our sins. The propitiation. Fancy word. Uh, the word propitiation is a technical term. It's a technical word uh, that describes uh, a sacrifice that removes guilt. It's actually relatively rare. It's not used very often in the New Testament. It's used a little more often in the Old Testament because it's a technical term for a sacrifice uh, Blood is shed in a propitiatory sacrifice, and that sacrifice removes guilt and makes forgiveness possible, right? So it brings in, so it's, it's not a thank offering. There's all kinds of offerings in the Old Testament. They're not all for sin, but a propitiatory sacrifice does have to do with sin. And that's what Jesus says, John says. He, he is the, our propitiation dealing with our sin. And you say, well, that, that's a technical term. What does that look like? Well, John's already told us what it looks like. He told us in last week's passage. And so if you just look at verse 7, right? Remember what he said in verse 7 uh, of chapter 1? If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And he repeats that in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That right there is pretty good uh, definition or explanation anyway of what he means when he says in verse 2 of our passage that Jesus is our propitiation. He cleanses us from our sins and he makes forgiveness possible. That's, that's that idea there. And so Jesus is our advocate. He advocates for us to the Father. He does so based on his own righteousness and therefore because he does, our sins can be washed away. And John says actually one more thing about our, our advocate there in verse 2. Uh, our advocate is not only our advocate. What does it say at the end of verse 2? He's the advocate for the whole world. He's the whole world's advocate. Uh, that is not teaching universalism. Uh, some people might uh, twist that to say that. Oh, well, look, everybody's saved because of what, what Jesus did. Uh, but John is not saying that Jesus washes away everybody's sin, whether they want it or not. Uh, if you think about it, that'd actually be kind of rude. Right? He doesn't. Jesus, he, he waits to, 
for that person to respond. Uh, and so it's not saying everybody's sin is cleansed. So what does it mean when it says that he's the propitiation of sins for the whole world? Uh, the, the point is, the idea is that he's the only hope for anybody. Right? He's the only hope for anyone's sin, no matter what part of the world they're from. No matter what tribe, what ethnicity, what religion they were born into, what nationality, what color of their skin, what time period they lived in, he is the only hope. And so he, he doesn't save everyone, but he is the universal savior. Anyone who's going to be saved has to be saved through him. That's the affirmation that's made there at the end of verse 2. And so he is uh, he, your only hope and my only hope for dealing with our sin when we sin is to trust in our advocate, to trust Jesus Christ the righteous. That's what it says in verses 1 and 2. Now, hold on a second, though. Right? I'm sure somebody's thinking, you know, I, I thought you said the goal was to not sin. It sounds like we're talking about when we did sin, right? So how does it help us overcome sin to know that Jesus is our advocate? How does it, having an advocate we can trust, how does that help us overcome sin? And uh, actually, I think there's a couple of ways to think of that. <clears throat> One way to look at it is to, is to look backward. Uh, we get a clean slate, Right? That's, that's what is the affirmation here. We really are set free from those things. We are set free from our sins. And so we're not hopeless. As we face a new temptation, we're not hopeless. There's this thing that in us that says, well, I gave up all those other times. I might as well give up again. I'm just, I'm, that's just who I am. I'm an alcoholic. I'm an addict. I'm, a, um, I'm just an angry person. I'm just, this is just who I am. That's just what I do. No, that's not who you are. That's not what we're defined by. We're not defined by our past sins, our failures. We are defined by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's who our advocate is. He's, our, he's Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so we stand before God not as people who are about to screw up yet again. We stand before God as forgiven people who have the Holy Spirit living within them and can say no, have the ability to say no. And so we have this fresh start. We don't have to keep doing those things. We're set free from them, and that helps us overcome sin. And that is the other part of it, because not only do we have a fresh, uh, a fresh start in terms of our past, that gives us fresh hope for our future, right? Because our, our, our advocate, it's not just that he has set us free from those things, it's that he also, he actually helps us. He actually helps us through the Holy Spirit. If you want to be technical about it, sometimes it helps to be precise. Um, Jesus himself is, on, is at the right hand of the Father, right, uh, in, the, in the throne room of heaven. But the Holy Spirit lives within us. And actually, this same word where it says Jesus is an advocate, I'll give you a little Greek here, the word is paraclete. That is exactly the same word that's used to describe the Holy Spirit in John chapter, uh, I think it's 15, John 14 through 17. The Holy Spirit is the called alongside one. The Holy Spirit is the advocate doctrine of the trinity they're all working together anyway and so we have god right here with us the, the word advocate means helper it means one called alongside so where is god when you and i are tempted where's god well according to verse one he's by our side jesus is by our side right when 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 you and i are tempted jesus doesn't kind of you know give us a little pat on the shoulder and say wow that's a tough one good luck buddy Right? And kind of walk away. You know, let, let me know how it works out. I'll be back in 10 minutes. We'll see how it goes. That is not what Jesus does. He's right there with us. He's the called alongside one. He's with us in the midst of our temptations as we face those things. Which means we have a very powerful ally in the fight against temptation. Right? He's right there to help us. He overcame sin. He did it all the way to the end. Every single time. 
Every temptation, every enticement. Jesus said no every single time. And now he wants to bring his experience and his power to bear on our lives. We have a very powerful hope, powerful helper with us when we are tempted. And so that's one resource we have. We have an advocate we trust when we are tempted. The second resource we have in Jesus uh, is that we have a king we love. So in Jesus, when we fight the battle against sin in our own lives, we have a king we love. And that's the best way I could think of uh, to, to summarize the next section. The word king is not used here, but I just spent a lot of time this week. What's, what, really, what kind of authority is John describing here? Well, he's describing the authority of a king. You see it in verses 3, 4, and uh, the first half of 5. So let me just read them again. It's been a few minutes since we heard them. Let me just read them so they're fresh in our brains. Uh, he says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, talking about that advocate, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. So John moves to another line of argument. All of this is under that initial uh, project we were given. I write these things to you so that you may not sin. We talked about our advocate. Now he shifts focus uh, with, with these words, um, by this we know, right? There's some, just, just some different signals in the text that he's going to change subjects on us. Now he's going to talk about the relationship between knowing Jesus and obeying Jesus. That's what he shifts us to in verses 3, 4, and 5. There are three statements. He makes three statements in verses 3, 4, and 5, and it's all very neat because one's in verse 3, one's in verse 4, and one's in verse 5, first half of verse 5. And these three statements he makes say the same thing three different ways. I think that's the key, which is why I'm lumping them together. They're the same basic thing said three different ways, probably for emphasis, because this is really important, right? So, so he wants to make sure we get it. So he starts out, beginning of verse 3, he says, by this we know. So he's talking about the concept of knowing something. By this we know that we know him. So he repeats himself. By this we, we know that we've come to know him, Jesus. And the reason this is so important is because of what he just said. Right? He just told us Jesus is our advocate. But think about an advocate. An advocate can only help you if you know him. Right? I mean, I'm, hopefully, you know, I don't know how much you've dealt with lawyers and whatever else, or if you, but if you've ever had like a court case or something like that that you've had to, to deal with where you've had to get a lawyer, uh, you've got to know the lawyer. Right? You've got to at least meet that person. You know, at least you know, they've got to look you in the eye and you've got to, you've got to know them a little bit. You, there's no such thing as an advocate who's never met the client. It doesn't really work very well. And I think that's the idea here. Jesus is our advocate, but we need to know him, which is why he, he shifts the focus now to this idea of knowing Jesus. It's, it's really important for us to know Jesus because he's our only advocate. He's the only hope we have for dealing with our sin. So let's make sure we know him. Here's how we know we know him. Verse 3, we know we know him if we do what he says. So here's the sign. He says, here's the, here's the, it's, a, it's like a litmus paper. You dip it in the, in the in thing. If it comes out the right color, you know it's true. Here's how you know that you know him. You know that you know Jesus if you do what Jesus says to do. Uh, verses 3 and 4 talk about this in terms of commands. Talks about, And actually, the verb is the same each time. Keep his commands, keep his commands. And then verse 5 talks about keeping his word. And that word keep means obey, to, to do, to carry out. And, and the, idea, the way he shifts from command to, to things he says, to words, tells us we're, we're, we're basically talking about this. We're not talking about only the Ten Commandments or only the Sermon on the Mount. We're talking about 
what God commands us to do in his word. And so that it's this broad sense uh, that we're talking about. You know that you know Jesus if, you, if you're living out what Jesus says to do here in this book. Now let me say it again. The standard is not perfection. That John's not saying you've got to be perfect, and if you're not perfect, you don't know Jesus. Go straight to hell, don't pass go. It's, you know, all that. that is not what he's saying. Because if, if the standard were perfection, we've already established in the end of chapter 1, if the standard is perfection, nobody qualifies. Anyone who says, I have no sin, deceives himself, and the truth is not in him. And so the standard isn't perfection, the standard is faithfulness. That's the scriptural standard. That's the sign you know Jesus. You know that you know him if you live for him. If, if, you're, if your lifestyle, you're, you're, you've embraced the goal, you've, you, you are striving to do what he says to do. And so just to show it in the verses, that's the overview. Verse 3 says it one way. We know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Verse 4 actually says it in the negative. He goes back to the same sort of rhetoric he used in chapter 1. Uh, if somebody says, I know him, but they don't keep his commandments, they're making it up. They're a liar. The person's a liar. The truth's not in him. Remember, he used that language, verse 6, verse 8, verse 10. Then verse 5, he comes back, says the same thing, few word changes, slightly different angle, but he comes back to the same thing. He says, whoever, actually, there's one significant word change. He says, whoever keeps God's word, still talking about commandments, the scriptures, whoever keeps God's word, in that person, the word keeper, in that person, the love of God is perfected. So in that person who's, um, and I wasn't going to go into the grammar, but I think it helps. Like when he says keep, each time he uses the word keep, three times he uses it, each time he uses what's called a present tense, and he uses it in a way that shows us what he's picturing is kind of an ongoing practice. Again, not perfection, but an ongoing, this is what typifies this person. Right? So I mentioned baseball before, this is off the cuff here, but I'm a Red Sox fan. But I don't watch every Red Sox game. I miss the scores sometimes. Sometimes, you know, somebody will ask me how they're doing. I'm like, you know, I'm not sure. <laughs> I haven't checked in a few days. But I'm a Red Sox fan, right? That, that's an, that is a, a, something about me. That's kind of the idea here, that, uh, that we are people who embrace God's word, even if we don't always live it out perfectly. In that person, look at the end of, the end of what I've been reading. It's the middle of verse 5. In that person, the love of God is perfected. In that person, the love of God is perfected. This is why I'm talking about a king that we can love, a king we love. See, the, the, the authority part is like a king. Like I said before, I, I struggled with what word to use here. Uh, John doesn't use the word king, but he describes a sovereign's authority. We are told three different times, obey, 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 keep his commandments, keep his commandments, keep his word. And if you think about a king, fortunately we don't do kings anymore here in the United States because human ones tend to be pretty lousy. But uh, kings, really what a king has is sovereign authority, right? If the king says do this and you don't do it, you know, off with his head, right? I mean, that's very much the kind of thing that can happen under a king. And Jesus is a good king, and that's the kind of level, that's the kind of authority that's, that's ascribed to him here. His, his commands are commands. They're not options. Their commands. But then look at the motive. Look at the motive John pins down for us in the middle of verse 5. People obey earthly kings because of fear. But John says we obey King Jesus because we love him. We obey Jesus because we love him. Verse 5, the love of God. And there's a, you know, a little bit of a, a decision that has to be made interpretively. Is that love from God or love for God? I think it's love for God, as I studied it this week. And so the, our love for God 
is perfected or fulfilled, is probably a better translation because that's what the word means. Our love for God is fulfilled in the person who keeps God's word. A guy named uh, Warren Wearsby, some of you recognize the name, he was a pastor a generation ago. Uh, he wrote a bunch of little commentaries on different books of the Bible, very accessible, good little books. And uh, I like to go to Wearsby sometimes because he helps me think um, in an accessible way. He, when he talked about this part of the passage, he, he talked about motives for obedience. Why, does some, why do we do what we're supposed to do? Why do we obey authority? Well, in general, you can think about obeying authority in three, uh, three ways. Sometimes we obey because we have to. Sometimes we obey because we need to. And sometimes we obey because we want to. And Wearsby gives some examples. He says a slave obeys because he has to. If the slave doesn't obey, the slave you know, may be punished in a severe kind of way. And so a slave obeys because he has to. An employee obeys, Wearsby says, because he needs to. Have you ever been in that position? You know, you, maybe you don't like what your boss said to do. You don't want to do it. You can think of two better ways to do it, but you need that paycheck, right? You need that job. You need that health insurance, whatever it is. And so you obey what the boss says to do because you need to, right? You need to. But according to verse five, Christians obey God because we want to. The love of God, love for God is perfected in that one. See, there's a lot, there are passages in the Bible. I'm not saying that there isn't this other side to it. There are lots of passages that talk about needing to obey God. Proverbs 9.10, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? And, and that's part of it. Right? When, we, when we are in awe of God, when we have a, a, an accurate understanding of how holy he is, how perfect he is, how righteous he is, when we have an understanding that there's this thing called righteous wrath, when that, that's a motivation in the battle against sin, and it's a helpful one, right? We don't want to get on the wrong side of... of, of we don't want to make God angry, right? We, we, we don't want to do that. That's part of it, but that's not what John is talking about here. That's not the resource this passage is talking about. He says that our obedience flows out of love. Whoever keeps his word, that word keeper, in that word keeper, truly the love of God, love for God, is being fulfilled, is, is being brought to completion. Like I say, that's what that word perfected means. And so that's where, this is where we, 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 that's where we see our love for God. We see our love for God in our obedience. And I'll just remind you of what Jesus said. Right? I really think all of this is keying off of something Jesus said in John chapter 14. And John, the writer of this book, is John, the writer of the gospel. John 14, 15. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you'll love me, you'll do what I say. And so our king, our king isn't just a king that we obey when we think about those admonitions to keep his word there in these verses. We have a king that we obey because we love. We love him for all that he's done for us and, and how beautiful he is and how wonderful he is and how glorious he is and, and that propitiation and that cleansing, it flows right out of that gratitude and love for what he's done for us. And love is a better motivation, isn't it? Love is a, wouldn't you rather somebody obey you, do what you tell them to do if you have that kind of authority over them? Wouldn't you rather they did it because they love you rather than because they're afraid of you? I was thinking about it this way. Uh, let's say I make a turkey sandwich at home and uh, I put it on the counter. Uh, our cats, we have two cats right now, our cats uh, will sit on the floor and stare hungrily at the counter because they know what's up there. That turkey sandwich, they both love turkey. They'll just sit there and they'll stare up at that. And they won't go up on the counter though. Right? As long as I'm in the kitchen, uh, their fear of me, don't worry, I won't hurt the cats. Uh, 
as long as I'm in the kitchen, their fear of me will keep them down on the floor where they belong. But if I put a turkey sandwich on the counter and then I go off to another part of the house to, you know, maybe I forgot something I meant to get, I'll come back in two minutes and get my turkey sandwich. If I come back up 30 seconds later, those cats will be on the counter eating the bread. The the female likes the bread. (laughs) Eating the turkey. Uh, They'll be eating my sandwich because I've left the room. And this isn't hypothetical. I know from personal experience that this is what will happen. And you see how it works, right? The, The source of fear leaves. The source of fear leaves. Boom. They stop obeying. They do exactly what they want to do instead. God wants so much better from us. He wants so much better from his children. How does John start that chapter? My dear children. God wants so much better from his children. Obeying God out of fear is part of it, right? A healthy fear of hell, a healthy fear of all. That, that, that's, that's biblical, but it's only the beginning, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? It's kind of foundational, but it's not, it's not how God wants us to live day in and day out. If we really want to see success in the battle, if we really want to win against sin, love Love's a much better motivation. Love for our king is a much stronger resource when it comes to overcoming sin. So that's the second one. The third resource John talks about here for overcoming sin in our lives is that we have a mentor to imitate. We have a mentor we imitate. And that's really what he's describing in the last part, the shortest part of this morning's text, uh, middle of verse 5 into verse 6. He says, By this... By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So at the beginning of verse 3, if you look at your text, John introduced a new thought with the words, by this we know. He does the same thing here in the middle of verse 5. It's intentional. It's a signal that we're switching to another topic now. Same big picture. We're still talking about overcoming sin. Back to the project. Uh, but here's a, new, here's a third thing to think about now, middle of verse 5, by this we know, except this time it's not, uh, it's not the thing we talked about before. It's not, um, <laughs> blank, blank, blank. Uh, it's not uh, by this we know that we've come to know him. Now it's by this we know that we're in him. Now we know we're in him. So now we're going to talk in the last verse and a half about being in Jesus, which is very similar to knowing Jesus, but it's not exactly the same, right? There's a little bit of a difference here. Here's the difference. When, we, when the New Testament talks about being in Christ, it describes the new status we have before God because of our faith in Jesus. And so it's actually this big sweeping concept. Um, when, we are, when, we, when, our, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, uh, the New Testament says in actually dozens of passages that we have this new status called in him, in Christ, in Jesus. It's different, different formulations of it, but it's this idea of being in him. And so the idea is that our identity is in him and our forgiveness is in him and our future is in him and everything you can think about now. It's, it's not defined by the world anymore. It's defined by being in him. And there's lots of verses. I'll just remind you of one that's a favorite for a lot of you. Romans 8.1 uses this language. There's therefore now no condemnation. There's no condemnation for our sin. For, for, for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? So there, Romans 8.1 is, is just one example. We are not condemned for our sin because we are in Jesus Christ. So it's really important to be in Jesus Christ, which is why John starts the way he does. There's a lot riding on it. And so he says in the middle of the verse, uh, here's how we know that we are in him. So before, here's how we know that we know him. Now it's here's how we know that we're in him. And it's a little different this time. It's not obedience. 
although I think obedience would come into play, but it's actually a little more personal now. Now it's that we follow his example. Here's how you know that you're in him. Here's how you know that you are living that life that is fixed on and defined by Jesus Christ. It's if you are walking the way Jesus walked. And there's this, you might, your translation probably has something like ought. We ought to walk. And so again, that's laying out this idea of this is what we're striving for. So I'll say it one more time. The standard isn't perfection. The standard is this is our impetus. This is our goal. This is what we're going for. And when we fall short of it, we confess it and ask for forgiveness of it and get back on the road to that goal, right? The pitcher gives up a home run. He doesn't say, oh, forget it and walk off the mound. Maybe they pull him, but, uh, but no, he says, all right, give me the ball. I'm going to throw it again. That, that's, a little bit, that, that's, that's a little bit of a picture of what we're doing. And so we know that we're in him if we're following his example which makes Jesus our mentor. And uh, I could have used different words here just in terms of how I I outlined this. Uh, I could have used the word model or example. Jesus is our example. But uh, everybody talks about mentors these these days, and so I thought I would join the club. Uh, Mentorship is a big thing. They talk about it at schools. You know, they'll appoint mentors for younger students. They'll have older teachers mentor younger teachers. A lot of it's a workplace thing. It's become very common these days to have mentors in the workplace. And what those mentors do is they, they, are, they, they show you the ropes, right? They show you how to do what they do, right? And so the senior salesman who's been doing sales for 20 years, he mentors a younger salesman, and he shows that person, you know, here's how you do it, you know, and, and he teaches them and, and shows them and, and, and so on. And so that's this idea of mentoring. And that's what Jesus does for us, right? And so uh, he teaches. And the thing about a mentor, the thing that makes a mentor distinct from a teacher is that a mentor shows by example, Right, so it, so it's, it, there, yes, there's content to communicate, and that's what teachers tend to do. It tends to be a lot of offloading of content. But then the mentor will also show how the content is lived out. Right? We'll, we'll show it in practice. So, uh, again, common kind of picture, basic kind of picture. But imagine you're trying to teach a child how to cook. And let's assume you know how to cook. Uh, so, so you're a qualified mentor. You're not just a mentor, you're a qualified mentor. So you're going to mentor this child in, in learning in, in how to cook. So there's a few steps you're going to do if you're going to teach a child how to cook. You're going to uh, do a lot of explaining, right? There is a lot of verbal explaining. There's content that has to be passed on. There's content that has to be taught. Uh, and so you do all that explaining. But then pretty quickly you reach a point where you turn on the stove and you get out a pan and you open the fridge, you get out some eggs and you start to, oh, here's how we make eggs. Right? Pretty soon you start showing them how to do it. So you're not just communicating content verbally anymore. Now you're, you're, in, you're, you're, you're illustrating it. You're showing that child how it's, how it's done. And after a little while, not, not too long at all actually, after, you're going you're gonna to do something, aren't you? You're going to hand that child the spatula, and you're going to say to him or her, you're going to say, now you try it. Now you scramble the eggs, right? Kind of like what I would do. Go ahead, you scramble the eggs now. And how is that child going to do it? She's going to do exactly what she saw you do, right? She's going to do what you did. She's going to imitate your example. That's a mentor, and that's exactly what John is pointing us to here in verse 6. That's what we have in Jesus. He is the example in our fight against sin, in, our, in this grand project to, to not sin, verse 1. Jesus is the example we imitate. And I would argue that this principle applies broadly, that we should look to Jesus as our example for everything. But in this passage, John's actually focused on sin. Right? That's what he's working with us on. He's talking about sin. And so Jesus is our mentor. Anybody here deal with sin? Uh, if anybody's with me in the sin problem, uh, then 
and I know you are because of last week's passage, uh, as we deal with our sin problem, Jesus is our mentor. He's the one who shows us how it's done. And if you think about it, there's no better mentor than Jesus when it comes to overcoming sin because he never sinned. I mean, you know, I mean if you want to learn how to do something right, learn from the best. And that's what we have in Jesus. He, he, he's the expert on resisting temptation. Right? He's the very best. Uh, he's the very best resource we have. His, his example, his model, how he approached life in Scripture. I was doing the membership class this morning, and we spent some time talking about how our doctrine, our statement of faith, Jesus is fully God, and he's fully man. And so he, as a full, complete human being, every bit as human as you and I are, he, he never sinned. He faced all the temptations we face and never sinned. It became a little bit of a cliche a few years ago, but the question's the right one to ask. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? How would, you know, so, so how would Jesus handle this thoughtless thing my friend just did to me? Right? Some, somebody does something thoughtless. How would Jesus respond to that? How would, how would Jesus reply if somebody said that to him, if somebody added him uh, on Twitter and, and said that? How would Jesus respond? How would Jesus interact in his relationship with this person of the opposite sex? How would, how, would he, how would he conduct himself in that relationship? Uh, what would Jesus post on social media? Would Jesus be on social media? Which social medias would he be on if he was? Uh, what would Jesus do if, if he had this much money? It's the beginning of the year still. Anybody sit down recently and, and try to map out a budget, a family budget for the new year? What would Jesus do if he had this much money and these responsibilities and these commitments? What sorts of choices would, would Jesus make? How did Jesus walk? when he walked. And that's really where John points us. He uses that, that word walk, which we emphasized a lot, you might remember in, in Ephesians, remember it came up a lot. There's a vitality to it. It's, it's Jesus walked this earth. How did Jesus walk when he walked? I heard somebody say once, we shouldn't really ask so much what would Jesus do. That's a little hypothetical. We actually ought to ask what did Jesus do? Or at least start with that one, right? We got Four books in the New Testament that show us what Jesus would do, would do what, di- what he did. What did Jesus do when he walked through situations like the one I'm walking through right now? That's a, a question we need to ask ourselves. And once we, we have an answer, we should imitate it. Right? That's what John is telling us there. In the power of the Holy Spirit, by his grace, uh, we should imitate. We should walk as Jesus walked. The thing about resources is that they're no good unless you use them. Right? Resources are no good unless, the, unless you use them. You've got to actually pick up that paintbrush if you're going to paint the living room. You can't just put it in the pot and come back two hours later and expect the room to be painted. I know I've tried. It doesn't work. <laughs> and it's the same here. It's the same with what we've talked about today. If we want to win over sin, if we want to win that battle, we need to actually use these resources. And so as I close, I'll just urge you to, to trust Jesus. You have an advocate. You have an advocate who is on your side. No one is on your side more than Jesus. Not your wife, not your parents, not your husband. No one is on your side more than Jesus is on your side. There's no better helper than him. Love him. Love Jesus. You have a righteous king whose commands are worth obeying and are for your own good. So love him by obeying him. And imitate Jesus. Imitate him. There's no better mentor than Christ in this battle we're fighting against sin. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you for this encouraging word. Uh, we, are, uh, we are your dear children, your little children, and we thank you that you look at us that way. We thank you that you're so merciful and patient with us. And uh, we would just ask you, Lord, to help us do these things we've talked about today. 
Uh, help us to trust you as our advocate. Thank you so much for the forgiveness we have in Jesus Christ that every one of us stands pure before you because of what you've done in us and done for us on the cross and, and have then applied to our lives. Uh, help us to love you and help us to imitate you. Help us to, to take that question seriously when we're faced with a temptation or maybe to be angry or whatever it might be that we're struggling with. Um, help us to take a, a half a step or two steps back and, and just remember you, to look to you and, and to process that the way you showed us how to process it. Help us to do that, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit who lives within us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.